This is the Misdirected Mark Podcast, a podcast about gaming, game mastering, and entertaining you, our listeners. We are explicit, you have been warned, and I'd like to thank Mike Willard for letting us use his music on our show. Now let's pick up those mics and get on with this thing. And welcome to the 500 left episode of the Misdirected Mark Podcast. This is event plays number 11. Tonight we discuss memorable NPC groups in your tabletop role-playing games, your experiences in Children of the Shroud. But first, my name is Jerry. My name is Phil. I am Chris. And I am Old Man Logan. Woo, let's uh, Woo. do any announcements. If we don't have any announcements, then my announcement is, please, go to our Patreon and give us some money. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> go to the Patreon because you can be part of our Slack community and you can get a bunch of extra stuff like podcasts and, and a variety of other things. Yeah? And we're going to mention this a couple times, but a lot of the NPCs we're going to talk about in here came from members of Slack room who got in and contacted Phil in a separate channel, room, channel that we don't have access that to. The players don't have access we are to. locked out of. I'm yep. like, what are they plotting our demises in there? I'm sure you're not locked out of it. I think I just told you don't subscribe. Yeah, that's uh, also, <laughs> give us some money. <laughs> <laughs> no, speaking of giving us some money, who is our, our newest patron? We have a new patron. Do you, do you have it up or do I have to go look it up? I could tell you. Our newest patron, Huxley. Thank you so much, Huxley. We appreciate it. Hey, Huxley. Welcome, welcome aboard, Huxley. I missed the part where that was my It's not your fault. It's not your fault. <laughs> I, I did that off the cuff. I was hoping that you would like pick up what I was throwing down, but it's fine. That's that's what you get sometimes with these recordings. That's why they're fun. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's While we edit these things, we also just like leaving those fun bits of stuff. So let's move on to the main segment. Let's just get right into it. In our recent Children of the Shout episode, Like a Rolling Stone, the heroes were introduced to a group of classmates. These NPCs are going to be recurring characters who also form a group of allies, foils, and possible rivals. However, they were presented in a way that made them both interesting and likable. So, tonight we're going to discuss some of the ways to make groups of NPCs that the players will want to interact with, while also making them part of the world. Now, we've tackled NPCs and recurring characters before. Go check out MMP episodes 440 and 448 to hear some of those past discussions. In those, we discuss what makes likable NPCs and the advantages of using recurring NPCs. We're going to be discussing both of those this week. Workshop! Workshop! Talking about groups of NPCs, how you make them, what do you do with them, why do you keep them around, your players need somebody to talk to, so make some NPCs here in the workshop. And don't suck. suck. Most RPGs have dozens, if not hundreds of NPCs, but sometimes you'll want to create a group of NPCs that the characters will interact with. A group that the players will want to return to again and again. Pick NPCs with personalities that complement the heroes or can act as likable foils. So you want to pick NPCs with similar interests that will give the heroes someone to talk to. This gives the players a chance to explore their own characters through role-playing. In Children of the Shroud, the character Ash and T both started talking because they both like punk music. NPCs with useful traits that fill in gaps that the party lacks without overpowering them will give the heroes a reason to interact with them. D's healing powers, for example, will be used in the future. Plus, she's fun to be around. Man, we hope these healing powers will be useful in the future if we need them. I really hope that we don't need them, and I don't see how we don't need them. We're just going to get our asses kicked by something, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Eventually. Anyways, NPCs who challenge the heroes in a playful, but, you know, not too mocking way will give the heroes a friendly rival. Think of uh, Donatella. She seems to enjoy mindlessly needling Silas for some reason, but doesn't take it too far. She seems like a nice contrast to Lisa, who is definitely a very much more aggressive rival for for Silas. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Also, fun personalities are just fun to interact with. If the players are having fun, they're going to go back to those NPCs again and again. These interactions with Gunny are great. Oh Amazing. my God. That moment in that game where we were like, so you're going to ask her out? And Gunny's like, uh, what are you talking about? I'm oblivious. The what now? Huh? 
I'm already ready to burn down somebody just to, to stop them from hurting D. This is going to be a good thing. Like, like Stoker's <laughs> standard that feels like Everson's standard. Everson every day. Like mm-hmm. just being awkward around girls in role-playing games. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got a series of role-playing games where that's happened. Yeah. That's well, why that trope is so old that I was hoping he was just going to like 180 it and just, you know. <laughs> every day Everson. <laughs> There's a little bit of me in all my characters. <laughs> One word of caution though, bullies, right? NPCs that overshadow the party's abilities and characters who are too insulting or sarcastic can drive the players away. Not really going to work if you're trying to create a group that they want to interact with. Mm-hmm. So obviously you don't want to kind of inject that kind of toxicity into your NPC pool. NPCs don't always have to be likable, but they should be characters that the players uh, enjoy interacting with. Like Lisa. Lisa's not necessarily likable right now, but she's fun. Whenever she shows up, we have fun interacting with her. So there's a thing about that character. Mm-hmm. She's been burned by the fact that Silas and her have history and Silas kind of stopped being her friend. Yeah. I understand that to Silas, so I can play off that. Like, I get why she's not super happy all the time. Mm-hmm. So it makes it easier for me to play that while the audience, well, there's an audience listening to the thing that we're playing, mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily know that. I mean, they know it now because I just said it, but you know. So I was just going through this list and thinking about the characters, because I know how we actually, like, I know how all those characters got created. Mm-hmm. And then I know how they got to the table. Some of it's on purpose. Some of it's dumb luck. Some of it's in- yeah. inspired by the gameplay. I plan out some of the stuff. I don't plan out other stuff. And then I just go and see what works. Sure. Yeah, makes sense. But so like, for instance, Ash's description was they had a punk look. So knowing that T had a punk background, I was like, cool, I'm just going to make them like, I'm going to presume they're friends and they have this musical background thing because that's a way for T to interact with one of the NPCs in that mm-hmm. scene. Mm-hmm. For D, like D's healing powers, that was picked by, you know, one of the uh, slack room people. And also they had written that they were like bubbly. incredibly bubbly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, if I remember correctly, I think that's an Andy Fox yes. one. And Andy Fox based all of her characters on dogs, <laughs> that, like from <laughs> nice. her life. So, so Thank you, Andy. for that one, like I didn't practice being D mm-hmm. at the table, but I just took a stab at it when, like when we started and then it seemed to click. Donatella was strictly from, there wasn't anything about Donatella that made her antagonistic towards Silas until I asked the question at the start of the session Mm -hmm. about rumors. Yes. And then I just decided to take the rumor and attach it to an NPC. And I did that literally while I think we were sitting at the table before the game started. Yeah. Oh, and then D and Gunny, that was a case where um, D was super excited to see Gunny here. Mm-hmm. Kind of thing. But also that was done on purpose because Gunny's the outsider. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so to play against the outsider trope, which is everybody side eyes you because, you know, you haven't been here before. Plus, you have this kind of weird background like you should have manifested earlier. You should have been part of the club earlier. There's some weird shit with you to play against all of that. D is super excited and like pulls you immediately into the group. D is roughly based on uh, the girl from Real Genius. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I can that. see yes. that. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I like that. But again, not planned. They're just like in the moment decisions mm-hmm. as like, you know, as we start playing. Well, that comes with experience. You're good at that kind of thing. Look, that is the thing about human beings that don't get enough credit for role-playing games and when people over-prep stuff. We're very good at pattern matching. Mm-hmm. That's a pattern matching technique. And you can train yourself to do that, but Phil is just pattern matching things to make the most sense out of the story. The other thing that I, I want to say is the trick with 
Gunny, where you went against Trope, was, in my opinion, a very good storytelling move, not because you played against Trope, but because Gunny's already got enough shit going on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He doesn't need another problem on top of all the problems that he already has. Yep. Exactly. Because we're actually not supposed to be playing that kind of game. Yeah. One, we're not supposed to be playing that kind of game. Two, if you're a patron and you've listened to the behind the screen, I have a very specific, so I'll just tell, I'll just tell listeners here, I have a very specific goal with this story number two. Story number two is connective tissue. It bridges Gunny's mysterious background to what eventually in story three will be the beginning of the meta arc mm -hmm. for okay. the story. There needs to be a transition piece where we go from Gunny is not magical, not part of the group, doesn't participate in magical mysteries to a point where Gunny is part of the group, participates in magical mysteries and does this stuff. And so story two is that bridge. And becomes one of the central foci of the campaign. Yeah. And so by having D be really positive about him joining, we cut off the possibility of, oh, this is going to be antagonistic or you're going to have to earn your way in mm -hmm. or whatever. D just kind of short circuits that and is like, oh, you're here. It's great. Boom. Come on. Let's go. And <laughs> yeah, that know, enthusiasm helps pull yeah. him along. Mm -hmm. it, it also just closes off that complicated story part. It also gives me the chance to turn to him as my character and be like, oh, so when are you going to ask her out? Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. me and Gunny know each other. We've yep. known each other for a while because we're in the, all of the same classes. Yeah. And since some of the other people in this group are also overachievers, mm -hmm. like D, like D's super excited yeah. because- D knew Gunny as a smart kid, not a magical kid. Yeah, and D's a little much from my friends. And she's magical, and my, most of my friends aren't. Yeah. Strangely enough, most of my friends aren't magical. Yeah. Because of my situation. Yeah. Yeah, so very much, like, story two is about kind of normalizing Gunny to the rest of the world so that we can move on with bigger plots. All right, so let's uh, move on with the topic then. I think that once you have a good group of NPCs, you can use them again and again to introduce or reintroduce ideas. We just talked about a bunch of this and plot hooks and stories and background into your games. I mean, D is going to function that way mm -hmm. for yeah. us. Uh, some of these other characters will function that way, I'm sure, too, because now there's this group of people that are part of an organization that we're a part of. When they have problems, they can come ask us for help. Or when we have problems, we can talk to them. Or if they have like little side stories going on that are outside of our story, it's interesting flavor for the world. That's what I think anyway. Mm-hmm. I think that's an important part of it because we get a chance to see the NPCs to show other parts of our characters. Mm -hmm. um, like in Time for Change Part 1, Phil introduced T's family and the quick interactions showed some little role playing. Phil used to show T's lighter side. I mean, he didn't resist kissing his mom. He didn't resist going on the date, which is against what you've seen T do so far, but also the normal family dynamic. Plus, it gave the other players a chance to jump in and play the NPCs. It also surprised me. I think it surprised Phil too and maybe Bob. Like we did not expect T to react that way. It told us something about his character that we weren't expecting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it also gave me a direction. If you're going to rebel against your mom picking out dates, I'm going to pick more, mm -hmm. right? Like, I'll push on it to get mm -hmm. to a, an eventual point where you have to have a conversation slash conflict with your mom about her meddling. But since you didn't choose that route, mm -hmm. instead, we, you know, in story two at the beginning, we find out how the date went which then, you know, takes it a different direction, which actually means that a new NPC is going to make an appearance in, in, in the game. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another good use of NPCs is to instantly signal change of theme. Whenever uh, Ms. Cortez shows up, the scene shifts from the normal school affiliation to magical, 
It's normally Vale, but could also be Mage. Makes sense. But it's at least the magical two. Mm -hmm. And while Mrs. Cortez often gives the heroes assignments, which is actually one of her jobs, mm -hmm. she rarely curtails what the characters are actually doing. And that is actually something that we built into the game, I think back in like session zero mm -hmm. and in the background is that adults aren't meddling yeah. with this stuff. So, in, you know, in today's thing, like you probably wouldn't have just been told like, Go find out what's making all the wind howl outside the school and deal with it. In other games, it would have been like, go find out what it is and then come back and tell me because like the adults are going to go like handle it. But in this game, it's like, nah, run off and figure it out yourselves. Go figure it out and handle it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was weird because I had to turn around and be like, I got to go talk to Miss Cortez because I don't know what to do about this. It's way above my pay grade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Miss Cortez is, you know, pretty much going to just give you some advice and send you on your way. Otherwise, it's not heroic for you guys. I appreciate it that you had Miss Cortez come with us because I know there's the instinct in a game like this to be like, well, these are your problems and this is like a kids on bike game, so go deal with it. But in reality, something like that, it's good that she came because it shows that she actually gives a shit about us. Yep. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. She's not like the absentee like, yeah. latchkey parent. Mm -hmm. She's an actual advisor, but part of your job in the four years of veil training that you take is you got to be able to handle some of yeah, this stuff. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But also, from a strictly meta perspective, I can't have NPCs, higher level, like higher powered NPCs coming in and solving problems. Mm -hmm. Sure. And, but like, like, that's what I mean. Like, yeah, you, did a a good, you did a good job of balancing the fact that like, I don't dislike her now. Because if she would have like not came and helped us, right. I wouldn't have trusted her in right. the yeah. future. And she didn't overshadow us. It's a, it's a very sticky line to walk. Mm -hmm. But she was there and we were just talking anyway. So I think that establishing trust with NPCs is a huge thing. That NPCs that act within their character, but don't betray the characters, don't constantly interfere and meddle in stopping them from doing what they want to do makes a huge difference. You only get one chance to betray a character with an NPC. After that, they are always on guard for it. Especially me, unfortunately. You know, this is one of those situations where like, I know that in 99% of situations, yes, but there is a, there are ways to do that and then rebuild that trust because we see it in storytelling all the time well sure i mean I, I, another game that uses a uh, troop of npcs that has high amount of betrayal and reusing them is amber diceless the elder amberites are probably going to screw you over somewhere but the game kind of traps you in that they're your aunts and uncles it's like the scorpion and the frog right like your aunt fiona is definitely going to screw you over when you talk to her are you still going to talk to her? Probably. But if you go into that interaction thinking, hey, it's all going to be fine. No. Right. You go in there thinking, how is she going to screw me? What method is she going to use to subvert my plan? Because yeah. she's going to. At best, you wind up like in a detente with them. The other thing to remember, though, is that I, while I appreciate Chris's comment that we see this happen in storytelling all the time, what happens in storytelling and what happens at the table with players is a very different thing because when your character gets screwed over, that's much more personal than when Luke Skywalker gets screwed over by somebody or when Han Solo gets screwed over by Lando. I mean, he builds Lando's trust back up again. Players might not come to that. So you gotta be, it's got to be done very, very carefully because I'll be honest, once a character screws me over, I never trust him again. And that's because that's you. There's ways yeah. to do it. Yeah. I mean, it's all I about, mean, it's all about justification. Well, yeah. and there's, yes, I mean, there's ways, part of it. there's ways to apologize as an mm -hmm. NPC. Like there are ways to rebuild trust, but to Jerry's point, if a character screwed me over, and that's never happened before, even if they rebuild their trust, I will now always consider that there is a percentage of this character that may screw me over at some point. 
It may be a small percentage, but it'll never not be out of my head ever again. I have to actually backtrack on what I just said, because I just thought of an NPC that has betrayed us in a way. Beta. Beta was our nemesis for the first good chunk of your Ox campaign. And when they came on board, we didn't trust them because they basically spent a lot of time undoing stuff and stealing stuff and interfering with our plans. And now they're part of the team. So I will say there is a way to build that back. Chris is 100% right. There is a way to build that back. Everybody applaud Chris. Good job. Because while we state best practices on this yeah, show, yeah. they're just best practices. There's always a way to do the thing that you think you shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. Well, there always is. There's, yeah. a, there's a reason why encumbrance is a good mechanic in certain sure. situations. Yeah. There's a reason why you can have a GMPC in certain situations. Absolutely. You can do it. And I think you can do it on two levels. One of the things that helped was we did have a meta discussion mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. beta turning around. Yep. Which helps the player side of the equation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And then we justified it by in story having beta do some trustworthy shit. It would have been harder for me to push that through if all we did was me trying to prove it to you only through the narrative. Yeah. Like it was a helpful shortcut to be like, hey, as a group, are we putting beta in jail or do you want beta to make like a uh, heel face turn? Mm-hmm. And when you guys were like heel face turn, I was like, cool, we can definitely do that. Now let's do it in story. And part of that is we trust you. You've established a lot of trust with us as players, as your GM, just as we trust Chris when Chris runs his game as well. We, we have a lot of trust in the GM. That goes a long way. At the same time, I will say like, if you do screw over a player and it doesn't bounce back as a GM, don't be surprised. It doesn't always happen. If you screw over a character. Yes, thank you. (laughs) That reveals the bleediness of what you're talking about. Oh, very much so. Yeah. The reason that we trust Phil, aside from him building up trust with us, is because he told us he wasn't going to do it. When you stop and talk about that situation, that is the primary, probably the best way to get that story beat in there, Mm -hmm. that storyline in there. There are other ways to do it, but they're a lot harder. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to thematically in Ox, have you constantly worry about where beta stood? We would not have had that discussion. No. Like I would have had beta like make amends and do all this stuff in story, but somewhere in your heads, you would always be like, should we leave him on the ship alone? <laughs> like, is that a good idea? Yeah. But by having the discussion at the meta level and saying, Hey, I'm taking this off the table. We're going to all make a decision now. And this is where we're going in the story. It lets you guys relax on it and lets us just actually play through and like, Cool, now let's make the story justify the behavior yeah. or the target behavior. It is the primary path to victory, but there are multiple paths to victory in that situation. Oh, absolutely. As a result of the way Phil has been playing Ms. Cortez, the players now look forward to her appearances because it normally signifies something magical, in other words, fun, or it answers or at least gives direction for the crisis that we're currently in. Even though her role as a teacher and adult would normally be a foil to the characters, she ends up being a welcome inclusion whenever she appears. I'm like tweaking every time somebody says fun. At least we're doing a fairly decent job of defining fun in these conversations. She's like dungeon master. She is like a dungeon master. Like just turn around like, oh, dungeon master. Master, Like, yeah. (laughs) That's from the original 80s cartoon. Yeah, yeah. For for our youngin listeners. By the way, they show up in the movie. That's good. Mm -hmm. I saw that clip. You know what I, you know what I, no, never mind. (laughs) Never mind. Listen to Thago with Advantage. You get a cool couple tidbits of information from Jared there. There you go. Okay. At the same time, uh, Lisa, Silas's rival, Yay. academic rival, mm-hmm. Yay. Uh, plays a similar role. Whenever Lisa appears, it tends to signify some sort of non-critical confrontation is about to occur. I-, I would even go as far to say that 
when Lisa shows up, it enforces that we are in a high school motif. Yeah. We are in the non-magical high school part of the game. From taunting to trash talking to actual contests of skill and knowledge, a scene with Lisa is always going to be dynamic and... Fun. But here's the thing. Lisa represents the actual opposition of high school life. Mm -hmm. Lisa is Silas's rival. Yeah. In a fun way, but also in a like, Lisa will grind him into dust academically if she gets the chance. She keeps trying. Right. The last time we had a, an encounter, I didn't care. Because yes. I'm busy. <laughs> yeah, well, that I mean, so that's a thing that is even more frustrating to Lisa because yes. Lisa is fully invested in one world. You are not. Mm -hmm. And so for her, like the beginning of that beginning of story two, getting ready for the Lockwood Academy, like she's like Patton, right? Like walking across the stage back and forth, talking about this is war. We're going to battle like because for Lisa that's Lisa's life. It is. Cause that was, that's, that yep. should be life for high school. Yeah. Right? Lisa's going to have like a breakdown somewhere in college. My favorite part of that scene is when me and Gunny like turn to each other and like, is this really war? We start talking about <laughs> yeah. like battle. Like I don't think war. we're really fighting. What's yeah. it good for? Well, and, and again, it, Absolutely like nothing. Lisa good can God, only see one world. So to her, this Lockwood Academy thing is like, this is the Super Bowl. This is Easter. This is, you know, all of those things. And for, Easter is the Catholic Super Bowl. You looked at me for a second, like, how did those two line up? But that's what it is. A lot of blood on the field. Well, I'm just saying, like, look, you gotta, if, if both, you do both it. situations. My, I'm sorry, Catholics out there. Blood on the field is Good Friday. Easter is resurrection. My, yeah. I'm so sorry. There's eggs in both examples. There you go. Anyway, <laughs> Lisa just, again, represents this really intense version of high school because that's who she is. And... It's good because Silas runs in that circle and occasionally needs to be, you know, brush up against it. It strangely was the most important thing to me for a long time. Yeah, exactly. In addition, even though Lisa is Silas's intellectual rival, she has a different relationship with Gunny. Tying her to two different PCs in two different ways means that when she appears, there's going to be some more, here's the F word again, fun drama. My lord. Who wrote this episode? Jerry it's did. fine. It, Jerry it, wrote the word fun look, in here. Look, every one of these paragraphs implicates what fun means. Yeah. So it's fine. That's exactly like, why I'm I did not that. mad about it. Folks, for those who might be new to listening, Chris has a thing about the word fun. Stop saying fun. It's subjective. <laughs> you have to qualify. You can say fun, but yes. you have to attach your qualifiers to it. That is a Chris pet if, peeve. If I'm, only, I'm pretty sure I, in every set paragraph I, I use fun, doing I kind of describe what it. I meant by it. I, I have said <laughs> repeatedly, like, you're defining what fun is. It just grates on me. Because all I can hear is, this game is fun. What makes it fun? It's just fun. I'm like, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay, that's I'm, bad. I'm good. Yes. Herpes is fun. <laughs> is it? Well, getting For herpes. For somebody. You keep using that word. Can be fun. Maybe. I do not think it means what you think it means. This is fun. For somebody, not oh, me. Yeah, look, we're, there's no stream here. Nobody can see. <laughs> nobody can see that hand gesture. Right, Hans, put the gun away. This is radio. <laughs> that was your resounding gesture yes, you, that Chris you. made. The and if you're not sure what that is, maybe look it up. Maybe don't. <laughs> All right. Well, it, it is important to note that in both of these cases, the NPCs are the catalyst for some sort of interaction in a scene, but they're not actually the focus, or rarely are the focus of the scene. Once they have served their introduction, it filled often lets the players drive the actual encounter. In fact, most of the time, it lets the players drive the actual encounter, unless it's Silas's dad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> then Silas's mm -hmm. dad is expositioning to us because we need to know shit. Mm -hmm. Also, people listening need to know shit, too. Allowing the NPCs to fade in and out of the action is needed without overshadowing the heroes. 
even in the test where Lisa defeats Silas, once the scene was over, Lisa dropped out of the game. Like, it's not her story, it's our story. Silas's loss was referenced later, but only became a focus when the player, in this case me, wanted to bring it back. It actually would have been a bigger problem if you had won that contest at first in story one. Sure. Because mm-hmm. you would have been handling the angel problem, but also having to get back to the extra credit lab after yep, school. Yuppers. Also remember that NPCs don't need to be fully fleshed out when they first appear. Just a short description, a few character traits, maybe something memorable enough for the first encounter. As the characters interact with them, more can be developed and backstories can be explored. And to be honest, most of the NPCs we've encountered, including our family and close friends, have only been given some very basic descriptors. Most of the characterizations we see are coming out in the game, and that makes them more interesting to us. Mm -hmm. I I think it does a couple things. So from a prep side, it's just easier, Mm -hmm. right? Not to have to work up full backstories for characters that you don't need them to. Number two, I can't anticipate which NPCs you will and won't like. So there's no point in investing prep-wise heavily into an NPC that at, you may just discard like offhand. That's a big thing is that as a GM, you almost never can tell which NPCs the players will like or dislike. Players can always surprise you and sometimes you just have to roll with it. I go with the an NPC gets more screen time the more you like the NPC. Mm-hmm. And I just wait to see what happens with that. The other thing is, by not having backgrounds, I can later in the story hook them into stuff. Yes. As things unfold in the game, I can be like, oh, you know what? This character has a an interest in that. I'm going to add a little chunk to their background that now ties them to this, you know, thing that's going on in the game. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to talk about Jason Cordova's public access now. Sure. So all of the mysteries... Because the mysteries are, if you're not aware of what public access is, it's a creepypasta horror game set in 2004 about nostalgia. And the mysteries all have sheets that are associated with it that are two pages long. They have a bunch of clues and stuff on there and whatnot, but there's often NPCs on there that are sort of defined, but not really. So you can use them in a bunch of different ways, which is another great example of how to do the thing that Phil is talking about. Like, I have this thing. It's not super well defined, but I can utilize it. Yeah, I personally, I mean, you guys see it. It's in my GM kit. It, it's, I think it's on the table with me at almost every game are those um, short order heroes, short order heroes, which unfortunately, I don't know if you can even get them anymore. It's just a list of personality traits and they often have like interest. They have funny little pictures that go with them, mm-hmm. but I use those. If you guys start talking about an NPC, like this happens a lot in Knights Black Agents, you'll make a contact. I'll just grab three cards and look to see if any of those traits look interesting to me. And sometimes I'll incorporate one, two or three. I'll discard and pick up another set. But the idea is that it just off the top of your head gives you something quick to make them notable. If they take, you'll see more of them. Like, for instance, your date, Kaylee throughout there if it'd been a disaster or you had rebelled against it would have never heard her name again now mm-hmm. probably got to go make up some stuff about her mm-hmm. she has to come back now she, she does have to come it's back a moral now. imperative short order heroes are available on drive through rpg they've got a bunch of different mm. decks that and they've got a bunch that are themed for events fantasy genre horror motives pulp oh, relationships goodness. and sci-fi drive through cards drive through cards yep oh thank goodness it's like just taking away sales from masks a thousand and one NPCs. Nothing will ever take away sales of masks. No, I use both. (laughs) You could go buy those. You could go buy those folks, by the way. They're great books. Yes. Mm -hmm. Where where, where can you find them? On drive-thru? Oh, of course. Always on drive-thru. Yeah. Drive-thru RPG, where you can get masks, 1,001 NPCs, and Eureka, 501 plots for your Mm -hmm. role-playing games. I'm going to buy, like, all of these. Yeah, me too. (laughs) 
Obviously, as the GM, I have more backgrounds and stories for some of the NPCs, but a lot of their personalities came from the player notes about the characters and their relationships. Others were just a name that got developed right at the table. For example, T's mom had a name, and we knew he had twin older siblings and a younger sister, but that and his family's position in the Vale were all we had. Most of the breakfast scene was ad-libbed. Actually, the thing I really wanted to do was two things. I wanted it to make it sound like even though you're a punk, you actually have a pretty loving family. Yep. And two, that just because you guys are magical, it's pretty normal. Mm -hmm. Contrasted to Silas's house, where we actually, in the opening story, we don't see Silas's dad right away. We just overhear a fragment of a very uncomfortable conversation. It sucks. And then his dad leaves. Mm -hmm. It sets a very different tone in the game. And that's why when he shows up at the end, it's like, oh shit, why is my dad here? Yeah. Uh -huh. Yep. And then he's like, I got to go talk to this kid. Going along with this breakfast thing, I came up with the names and personalities of the twins on the fly. I think we, mm -hmm. we all helped each other, really. Yep. I, I call Amethyst and Geo. Yep. Mm -hmm. And yep. I just started playing Amethyst without any prep. Just like, because mm -hmm. I was like, uh, I'm the annoying older sister and you're, ju you're just a punk and you're not very useful to the family. You're just kind of bad. And as a player, I just kind of yes-handed the whole thing. Like, as soon as Chris came up with something, don't get in another player's way unless there's some really strong reason to do it. Let the other players, let the other characters develop these NPCs for you because it becomes a lot more fun to interact with them. The only two that I had a grasp on as we entered that scene was that your dad was, you know, making breakfast, which is one kind of a symbol of like where he sits in the family. He's very connected to the family. He's cooking. He's making mm -hmm. breakfast for everybody before they go to school. And then to make your mom the mom who's like, oh, I got to find you a good girl, a good magical girl. And that's like a little stereotypical. Like but it was like fun matriarch. Yeah. What's that? I feel like she's playing the matriarch. Yeah. And it, like, was, so. yeah, and it was kind of fun, you know, kind of fun to do that. You know, she's sitting at the table, snake hair and all mm -hmm. like, you know, you got to find yourself a nice magical girl, like settle down, that kind of thing. I do have to say it is important to make sure that when you start playing NPCs in the game, that is okay with the game master and the person who's connected to those NPCs mm -hmm. most strongly that it's okay with them. And, and we have a boatload of safety tools on the table, including... We have script change for rewind and editing. So like if it wasn't okay, there's tools for somebody to be like, oh, pause. I kind of always thought my sister was more like this rewind and like, you know, and then go again kind of thing. As a matter of fact, I think when Chris did it, I think he jumped in as a character, stopped for a second. I remember you giving a slight pause and then went on with it because we all like looked at him and smiled like this. Mm -hmm. Go, 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 go. You know, that kind of thing, mm -hmm. which was Chris, you know, asked for permission before he kept going. It was a good thing. Well, lastly, not all of the NPCs the party wants to interact with over and over again have to be in the forefront. Sometimes it's going to be a bit character created on the fly when the GM needs someone for a scene. For example, Archie Blake, who interacted with Gunny, came from a botch on Gunny's test, but quickly became important for a few scenes and even helped give Gunny some direction. I expect we'll see more of him in the future, because he just got created on the fly, but any bit character can be given a few traits and personality once the players become interested in talking to him. You know what's interesting about that is that Archie Blake isn't part of the Shroud, but isn't part of the Guardians. Yeah, he's probably somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. um, he's not. He wasn't in that list. He wasn't why. in the. So he wasn't I, in the list that the, the uh, that the players made. But I kind of need to pull him in again now for continuity purposes. Unless unless he's not a member of the Guardians, because not all of us have magic. No, but he had magic because he could see. Um, no, I meant like all of us have like martial magic. 
Oh, yeah, no, I'll probably put him in. Oh, okay. He, I'll just, you know, he had some other reason. They, like, he had another after-school activity or something. I don't know. I'm assuming because he was going to talk to Miss Cortez if she had him off doing something else as well. Sure. Yeah, that's probably like, possible. Yeah. Yeah, he may be a little older and, and has more responsibility or mm-hmm. who knows. I don't know. He'll come back. I do want to bring up one more point is that NPC groupings, like, how do you introduce a whole bunch of NPCs all at once? Because Phil introduced a good half dozen more NPCs at the same time and... I can't remember who all of them are, but I do remember who some of them are. And mm. that's probably on purpose because then we can cycle back around to touching on those other NPCs later when they become important. But what were you thinking when you did that out of curiosity? When I'm doing prep work and I'm kind of working through how I think a scene's going to go, I draw heavily on TV, comic books, things like that. So I'm picturing what does it look like when Kitty Pride first meets the X-Men, like sees them in the danger room. Each one of them is kind of doing the thing they're known for doing. You know, we see the one kid eating because his magic is about consumption. We have a couple people paired off practicing. So I see it in my head as like a montage because what I want to do is I want to give you like a very high level, like here's what they're doing and then wait for you to like ask questions. Like if you're like, well, why is that kid eating rocks? And I'd be like, cool, go over and talk to him, mm-hmm. right? But if you're just like, no, this kid eating rocks, like, then he might be important later. Like, I don't worry about him so much. What I think is interesting is that you gave each of them a very, a distinction. Like, I don't remember everybody's names. I know D was the bubbly one with healing. Donatella, I don't remember their powers, but I know that they have. She's a princess. She's a princess. Ash has the scythe and is very punk. But I also know that there's the rock eater. There's the person, I don't know their name, but I remember they have the only really cool beard in school. Yes. There's, he wields two daggers. I only know this because I like yeah. regrouped all the NPCs. And there's the, there's the one person who is absolutely middle of the road. Nothing, what's extraordinary yes. about them is that nothing's extraordinary. But as a result, later on, even if we don't remember all the names, we can talk about, oh, the beard guy or, or whatever. And they'll stick in your head. And the more we interact with them, they'll grow more. But ah. until then, we've got these little traits that instantly jumped to mind when they talk. And if Phil comes up and says, you know, it's, I don't remember the, the beard guy's name, so-and-so, the guy with the really awesome beard, we all of a sudden get a whole bunch of other things jumping in our minds. So giving them a particular trait right off the bat, just snap with me. So I can take no credit for those NPCs, right? Those were created by yeah, the, yeah. the Slack room. Slack but, room. <laughs> but what I asked them when I gave, I gave them a little text block. Mm-hmm. So I asked them, you know, what do they look like? What kind of magic do they have? Give me a couple personality tags. I can't remember if it was something notable or whatever. It might have just been the description, but that's what they packed into those things. And some of those are very Senda and I'll specifically call it Senda and Andy because they're really good at picking these like weird little traits. Has the best beard in the school. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like that's just like it's it's a weird one. But when you think about it back at that age. Like, no, it's a big there was deal. somebody yeah. in your there school who oh, yeah. could really grow a beard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like when everybody else is like patchy or I was like total baby face kind mm-hmm. of thing. There's like somebody who's got like a beard and you remember that. I'm going to aside us now because you mentioned the X-Men and Kitty Pryde, but I'm going to talk about that, that X-Men cartoon from the nineties. Which one? The original Fox the one original or the generation? Fo- the original one? Fox okay, one. Sure, sure. So the first two episodes are Night of the Sentinels. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it starts with Jubilee. Mm-hmm. And it's Jubilee getting introduced to all the X-Men characters. Mm-hmm. That animation is so bad. Yes. Oh, oh yeah, God. It is, it's painful. That, did, did they did they fix the did they fix the the 
the, the color changes that they had when they first released it? I guess. I don't, I couldn't remember there were, between there were, now and 30, what was it, 20 well, years well, ago? You, you, you notice that there's a couple scenes where, where people change from being African-American to not African-American in the same scene. I mean, there's a bunch of editing mishaps in there, yeah. like they're bad, but it does introduce all the characters. Yes, it does. The comic books always have this issue, mm -hmm. right? Like, especially if you're using non-established characters, you very quickly need to establish kind of a little bit of personality and their power. It, it's a bad cartoon too. Oh like, yeah. Yes. Season Ex two is much better. Except that the, except that the theme song is great. Might be one of the greatest theme songs. That's theme song slaps. Yo, yeah, it does. Right. You can just hear it. And I, I guess the, I guess they're on track for X-Men 97. There's they are. Be, they're uh, I'm looking for, that's why I'm watching it. I'll yeah. have to go back and watch it. Cause I, I, I tried watching it and then I was like, I stopped. I was with Chris. Season two is better than season one animation. When I was watching it, I stopped watching it after, after like episode three or four, when I saw like, all the villains walking through downtown wherever wearing their costumes it's like oh look it's pyro wearing his pyro it's, outfit going it's to get for some breakfast. kids right yeah. like it's gambit's wearing his costume the entire time anyways yeah. my, my point of that i mean aside from bringing up terrible animation and how bad it <laughs> yes. is was they actually do a not halfway bad job of like introducing each of those characters now it's a yeah. visual medium right yeah so in the role-playing medium we have the things like has the best beard ever as a visual description mm -hmm. for us to like latch onto, or is completely plain and does nothing or is super bubbly and then phil plays up the super bubbly part or princesses up on me and tells me I'm a terrible person because I drove her friend away. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that happened. Yeah. So I'll go back to Amber Diceless. I'll ask Bob a question. This is my own personal uh, jamming style, but I have a particular way that I like to start Amber campaigns because for the same reason, you kind of need to meet all the family mm -hmm. and all the family needs to meet your character. What, what's the, we played several campaigns. What's the, what's my, Typical opening. And you've done this, you've done this in other games besides Amber. Yeah. A party. Yes. Oh, a party. Nice. You always started the campaign with a party and you walk around and you meet people. Imagine that. Yeah. So great way to introduce a group of people is, is the way that you did it. Um, another trick that I've used, which if you have these things and you're playing in person or even online, it's hard to introduce a bunch of NPCs all at once if you're just like rattling off a bunch of names and things like that. Correct. So... What I did was, and I've talked about this on the show before, is I had pictures of people that I taped to index cards that were folded up and then covered them with other index cards to hide their names so I let the people go and talk to them. And then I could do the thing that Phil was doing with these introduction of these characters instead of like looking around a room and seeing everybody. When you walk up to somebody and talk to them, when you introduce yourself and they introduce themselves, I take the name, the, the cover off the name tag so then you have that interaction. I think that's a great way to do large groups of people and especially like parlor mysteries with a number of NPCs that you need to introduce right away. I'm going to note too, so I don't forget them. One, I want to talk about Amber and one, I want to talk about Long Live the Queen, but along the same line for Amber, I was very fortunate that way back in the day in the nineties, one of the players in my original Amber game was an artist. And for those who've read the Amber books, there are these uh, cards called the Trumps that are uh, each family member and you use them to psychically contact family members. And so each one is like a tarot and it has the character drawn on it and the drawing of the characters pretty characteristic of who they are. Mm -hmm. So I was very fortunate that my player between campaigns one, one year, cause I played in the summers, he drew the entire set of Trump's illustrated all of them. We then color printed them. This is like 1992. We color printed full sets, laminated them. So when we played, I could hold up a card 
and be like, this is Kane. And you would see like his green colors, his pirate looking outfit. This is Blaze. And sometimes I would have props for them. Like Blaze always had a wine glass in hand because he drank a lot, that kind of thing. But those going back to the same thing you were saying, like having that visual connection, having a prop that connects you to a particular NPC, exceedingly good. In my Long Live the Queen game, we have a whole bunch of NPCs in the game. And I have a page called the Lookbook, which just I go into Google images and I grab pictures of either random people, models or actresses, actors or whatever, and assign them like name them as the NPC. And then when Senda and I are playing, I will share screen and pop up the lookbook and be like, oh, let's remember, this is this NPC, this is this NPC, that kind of thing. And it just helps to like reinforce, you know, each of the NPCs. All of these things are excellent methods with which to cr- introduce, reinforce, and remember NPCs. Yeah, because I think, that, I mean, it's nice having, uh, it's nice having a large amount of NPCs for... The players having a way to index and reference them. I know in our Forgotten Realms campaign, we had a spreadsheet with we had a spreadsheet of all the NPCs and kind of a a quick description of when we met them. So like, oh, that farmer that lived outside that town, like, you know, when you guys went to bring the barrels of ale to the, you know, lands in the Far East or something like that guy's name is in there. So that if, and especially in a game like Forbidden Lands, where you might pass by that way again, you might be like, oh yeah, who is that guy? Like, quick check the spreadsheet. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The couple of ways that I've seen that are great for indexing that is we have our own method around, at least my games, what's called the uh, the campaign tracker. It's got a list mm-hmm. of all the NPCs with like, their name is bolded in bullet points and there's like a line or two about mm-hmm. them like right next to it and their role in the story up to that point. Mm-hmm. The character keepers from a lot of gauntlet oh, games have usually a spot in them that tracks any NPCs that you have met. You can list them yourselves. Mm-hmm. Like I know public access has one. Like I've been filling it in while we've been playing. It's important to keep that because it's not my job to. Well, and especially cause we're playing things with mysteries, mm-hmm. like things with mysteries need better information management. And uh, that's our recap of recurring NPCs and NPC groups in RPGs, specifically our Children of the Shroud campaign, plus some techniques that we hope that you'll find useful to utilize out there. Let us know if you have any other thoughts about NPCs and how you might use them in your games. The best place to do that is definitely our Slack room, which you can get to through our Patreon. If not there, Twitter, Dice Camp, all those places are great places to reach us. Bob, would you tell us about another show on the Misdirected Mark Network now? I would love to. Let's talk about the Gnomecast. Several gnomes from Gnomes do get together to talk about gaming topics and themselves in an effort to entertain you and to avoid being thrown in the stew. Very cool. Why don't we do some Patreon shoutouts now, bud? You know, we probably should do some Patreon shoutouts. Very, very big thanks to Chris Constantine, Mirko Frolik, Eric Simon, Kathleen Helperin, Christopher Gmelch, Michael Beck Esperum, Joseph Knoll, Carlos Heptolemma, and Michael Draper. And once again, a big thanks to our newest patron, Huxley. Thank you so much. And thanks to everybody for listening to this. If you like the show, you can hear more just like it at misdirectedmark.com. If that's not enough, you filthy podcast listen. Sorry. <laughs> you know who you are. Keep listening. Check out our Patreon page. Yeah. Go check out our Patreon page. I dare you at patreon.com slash MMP. You want to check it out. 
And there are hundreds, hundreds of bonus episodes available for your greedy ears to listen to. Last time I looked and posted a thing, there was at least 284 MP3s, and I know there's more than that. That is whole bunches. Aside from those bonus episodes, the after show on the Bamboo Lounge, you also get our MM Plays game stuff like Phil's nifty setting document for the Children of the Shroud, our characters from that game, the mods we're using, and Phil's Session Zero worksheet. Beyond that, there's Chris's game development notes on the Lamplighter system, which is going to power the Streets of Avalon RPG. I'm cracking the the magic stuff right now. It's hard. There you go. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, access to our Slack channel, which is the very best way to talk to us. Yeah, and if the Slack channel isn't your thing, uh, you can still hit us up on email at mmp at misdirectedmark.com or check us out on Twitter uh, at misdirectedmark is the best place if you want to get a response. Yeah, that's that's mm-hmm. I'll, I will respond to you probably. <laughs> mm-hmm. So where do I find the rest of you guys on social media? I'm at the light 101 on Twitter. That's pretty much it at the moment. Like other than at misdirectedmark on Twitter, I'm not very much on the social medias. I'm at GM Gerrymander on Twitter and at Dice Camp. I'm at Robert M. Everson on Twitter, and someday in the not-too-distant future, hopefully Dice Camp, if I remember to do it. You know, I have a Dice Camp account, but I don't really know how to use it. Somebody's got to show me. It's Twitter-like. It's Twitter-like, but I don't, like, fig- I can't figure out how to get inside of, like, following people and, like, the groupings and things like that. Yeah, I'll yeah, see what I can it, do okay, now. It needs a little help. What about you, Phil? I'm DNA Phil pretty much everywhere. You can find me on Dice Camp. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. You can even find me on TikTok as DNA Phil. Yeah. Last, we have a bunch of other shows on Misdirected Mark Productions. The roster includes Pandas Talking Games. We have a panda here in the house. We have the Gnome Cast, which some of us are gnomes. There's Bonus Experience, which is hilarious. And Thaka with Advantage, which just covered the D&D movie. If that still isn't enough, we have a bunch of friends who create content, too. There's the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge. The Knights of the Night with their excellent APs. Mastering Dungeons, which is all about 5th edition D&D, and How to RPG, hosted by Sean P. Kelly of Gaming and BS. You can catch him live on Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern on the YouTubes. This has been a Misdirector Mark production, the media arm of Encore Designs. Mic drop. We out.